uh, the Greater Europe mission is uh, reaching Europe by multiplying disciples and growing Christ Church through uh, the work of about 500 missionaries in 20 countries in Europe, um, with all sorts of ministries going on, theological education, which is what I do, but all, a lot of other uh, things, including refugee work, of course, you know about the refugee, the next refugee crisis that hits Germany. We, we've got about a million uh, Ukrainians coming into the country. Uh, evangelism, church planning, and much more. Uh, for those who are uh, new, I want to give a little information about Germany and, and also why we're there. Uh, Germany is Europe's largest economy and the fourth largest in the world. It's also the most populous nation solely within Europe, Russia. It's larger, but within Europe alone, it's Germany, and approximately 20% of the population are not ethnic Germans. 5% are Turks, for instance. Um, and I mentioned the refugee crisis. Uh, what characterizes Germany even today is their shame for their Nazi past, um, which makes them very suspicious of nationalism. The only time the German flag flies is for uh, soccer games. But otherwise, they're very um, careful about that. They are, however, very proud of their cultural and intellectual um, tradition, which includes, of course, the Reformation. Um, none of us would be here, probably, in this place if it wasn't for Martin Luther and the Reformation, which happened uh, 500 years ago in Germany. And so many people think of Germany as a Christian nation. But it's become as thoroughly secular as the rest of German, of Europe. Only about 5% of, uh, of Germans will be in a church uh, on a given Sunday. In many areas of the country, much less than that. Um, and less than 50% believe in life after death or personal God. Eastern Germany, which is where Martin Luther lived and worked, is now the most atheist place on earth, with over 70% of the population saying they never have believed in God. So that's why we're there. Um, here's our family. Um, uh, at a recent wedding, my son in the middle of got married about five weeks ago, and next to him is his, uh, on the left is his wife, uh, Laura and uh, our daughter Emma on the other side, and then Helena and William, their son Isaiah, and as you can see, she's uh, expecting, or were expecting, another grandson in a, a week or two, so I'm happy about that. Uh, I just want to talk about my mission, just a brief word about Tatiana. She's in kind of a phase of regrouping. She's uh, ceased working as a physical therapist, for, which she has done for many years, for some, uh, health reasons, a little bit of problem with her hands and other things she wants to try to do and regrouping. Um, so this will focus more on my ministry, uh, but uh, we are, I'm there to impart a passion for and a trust in the Word of God to the next generation of evangelical leaders in German-speaking Europe. And I do that primarily by teaching New Testament at the Gießen School of Theology. Uh, which is located in Gießen, Germany, just north of Frankfurt, about a 40-minute drive from the airport, um, and right in the center of the country. Uh, this school was founded in 1974. We've been fully accredited now for uh, 15 years, and we offer a two-year 
a three-year bachelor and a two-year master's in theology. Um, and we have about 200 students currently. We're growing. That's great. And we trained over 1,200 pastors, uh, teachers, missionaries, and so forth. Um, our goal is to look for theological reasons through an evangelical commitment to the authority of Scripture. If you know anything about Germany and theology, you know that German liberal theology is what has caused so much uh, of the decline of the church. The great German theologians that everyone quotes uh, began to believe over a hundred years ago that the Bible was not the word of God, that Jesus was not the Son of God, uh, that he didn't rise from the dead, and we're there to uh, provide a, um, a solid alternative to that kind of theology, which is uh, really a seamless way throughout the Western church. Um, just some highlights here. We've experienced new growth. As I said, we're up to 200 uh, uh, students. Up to maybe four or five years ago, we were at 140, 150, and each year we grow. And uh, because of that, we've had to build. We just moved into a new building uh, that can house um, up to 250 uh, students. So we're really excited about that. Um, uh, I've had some new ministry opportunities I want to uh, tell you about. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I've become, uh, well, I have a podcast now that's very new to me. I'm not of that generation. Um, and uh, this podcast, a former student who works for the uh, Christian, Small Christian Radio there came to me and said, can we do podcasts for young believers? So we get together and make podcasts. I've answered questions like, typically, why wait for marriage for a sexual relationship? Is it okay to smoke marijuana? Is heaven a boring place? What do I do with the, when leaders fall? Questions like that. And um, it's getting some play. I don't think I'm going to uh, be able to live off that in the near future, but um, uh, it is an exciting ministry. I'm glad to see that launch. Um, I'm also speaking more in churches. Um, I've developed a, a program or a, a, a seminar on Christian sexual ethics, and uh, uh, so I get to churches maybe once a month or every six weeks for a weekend to give a seminar. Um, that has to do with some new publications I brought out. Part of my ministry is writing for the German church. On the left, I have a new commentary that I brought out a couple years ago on Colossians and a Bible study guide for Colossians. And then this book on the uh, left, which is called in English, What Was God Thinking? Uh, a bit, the Biblical Basis of uh, Christian Sexual Ethics. And there I try to provide exactly that a question, why did God invent sex? What was his purpose in it? What was it, what was in God's mind? And if we don't know that, we can't answer any ethical questions, right? We end up, well, we end up where we are in our culture. Um, without any sense of what the purpose of this is. So this book tries to answer that question. We want to take the time to thank you again for your generous support and your prayers for us. We're very aware of uh, the ministry, or that our ministry is made possible by you and many others, um, and we thank the Lord for you daily in our prayers. I want to move now to the sermon, and... Uh, I want to preach uh, today from the Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, and we're going to look at um, Philippians 2, 
1 through 13. So if you have your Bibles or you can uh, find a Bible in the chair in front of you, you'll want to follow along yeah, in that um, from the letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through um, 13. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to the interests of others, but to his own uh, to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is also uh, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and be found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, every, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, as you, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Lord, we thank you for your word and pray that it would sink deep into our hearts and transform us as we listen to your spirit speak to us. Amen. Philippians is often referred to as uh, the letter of joy. Paul <coughs> speaks about joy throughout this letter very often. Um, and in, for instance, in um, Philippians 4, 4, he says, uh, I say to you, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. He hammers this home that we should rejoice. And joy was a defining characteristic of Paul's life. In spite of all the suffering that he endured, we read about his ministry in Philippi, uh, he was, uh, after a productive ministry, thrown into prison, beaten severely, and yet we see him there in prison singing to the Lord. A joyful heart uh, is what characterizes Paul. And when I contrast that with many modern Christians, especially the uh, students that I uh, deal with, um, they fall into the category of what we call millennials or Gen X and then Gen Y. And both of these groups are very skeptical, um, as a characteristic of them, of um, things like uh, joy. They see it as oh, something that we just kind of put on. Um, when they see a truly joyful person, they often think of it as inauthentic. Nobody can be that happy, right? Um, and in many cases, um, Christians have put uh, happy face on a lot of suffering, and we've tried to act joyful or make it happen uh, so that in some cases their skepticism is right. So I want to ask the question based today on this letter, 
How do we attain real joy? And I think this passage will help us to understand that. This passage is the very heart of the letter, um, in, uh, and it points us in the right direction. Uh, I'll give you the conclusion here at the beginning, and then we'll see how it works out. If I understand Paul right, he doesn't talk specifically about joy here, but it's embedded in the letter where it's all about joy. And I would say it this way, joy flows from a correct understanding of who Jesus is and a willingness to order our lives accordingly. Joy flows from a correct understanding of who Jesus is and a willingness to order our lives accordingly. When we look at the passage we just read, um, we see that this uh, uh, text has a typical sandwich structure. It has three parts. Uh, the first part is verses 1 through 5, and then 6 through 11, and 12 through 13. And often the way uh, Hebrew people thought and made their uh, text, the most important part is often in the middle. That's why I refer to it as a sandwich part. The, the meat is there in the middle. And you have a piece of bread above and below. Think of it as a sandwich. So we're going to look at the meat uh, first and then see what happens uh, above and below that text. And the meat is here in verses 6 through 11. It's often referred to as a hymn to Christ. Um, and many scholars think it is actually an early Christian hymn, a song that was sung in many church services in the first century. In any case, it does have some poetic elements, and it seems to be a hymn of praise to Christ that expresses who he truly is. And what, is it, what do we learn about Christ here? There are three uh, things I want to bring to your attention. First of all, that Jesus is God. Um, three statements here underscore this truth. First of all, we read, Jesus is in the form of God in verse 6, the beginning. Now, when we hear the word form, the English word form, that can give us the wrong impression, because we think perhaps of the outward appearance. But the Greek word that's used here denotes the necessary characteristics of something. For instance, a pizza. You've got to have some crust, and you've got to have sauce, and you've got to have some cheese. Those are the essential elements of a pizza, or a skateboard. You've got to have a platform, and you've got to have some wheels. And it can't be a skateboard or a pizza unless those things are part of it. That's what this means, the verse is saying, or this word, or this word. So that when Paul says Jesus is in the form of God, he means that he possesses, Jesus possesses, the necessary qualities that make God, God. He doesn't give any details here, but the New Testament mentions some of these elsewhere, that Jesus is sinless, that he has the authority to forgive sins, that he is the creator and he's our judge, and so on. So Jesus is the, in, has all the necessary characteristics of God. Secondly, we read, he was given the name that is above all names. Now, if you're a Jew in the first century, it's clear which name is above all other names. It is the name Yahweh, or often in English Jehovah. It's the name of God. That name is above all other names. And when Jesus says, when Paul says he has that name, it's pretty clear who he means. Finally, he says, 
every tongue, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The word for Lord here is one you might have heard, kurios, and that's the Greek translation for Yahweh. Uh, in the Greek Old Testament, the translation in the Greek, which was already available in the first century, every time Yahweh is mentioned in the text, it is translated with kurios. Um, and Paul knows that. And yet, whenever uh, he has no inhibitions about saying Jesus is the kurios. Interestingly, you might not even have caught this. If you look in your, uh, in your Bibles, you'll probably see a footnote that says there's a quotation here from the Old Testament or an allusion. When we read, for instance, in uh, Paul, we find that Paul is quoting uh, Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, where God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out righteousness. To me, or before me, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess me. Paul takes this verse and describes him to Christ. Now we confess Jesus as the Lord. So Jesus is God. Secondly, the second thing we learn is that Jesus is a servant. We read Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped in uh, the second part of six, verse 6. He was God, but he didn't cling to prerogatives to the benefits of being God. He doesn't give up his deity. It says it emptied, he emptied himself, but it doesn't mean he became, he was no longer God. It means that he gave up all the accoutrements, the status, the prestige, and the power that goes along with being God in order to become a servant for us. It says that he took on the form of a slave verse 7. Remember, it's the same word for form um, that we have in the first verse. I mean, he has all the necessary attributes of a slave. And what are those? In the first century, powerlessness, humiliation, ostracism, and derision. One author talks about uh, slavery as social death. You cease to be a person. You have no rights Jesus took that upon himself. He humbled himself, we're told, by becoming obedient, so much so that he was willing to die on a cross for us. And here we see the obedience of Jesus stressed. This doesn't mean that he let himself be crucified against his will. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, uh, we see that Jesus was full, fully in agreement with God's will, with the Father's will. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 48, where the author says, I have come to do your will. Jesus stresses this throughout the Gospels, that he is of full accord and fully united with the will of his Father. So he willingly takes on this role, becomes obedient, and dies on a cross. Now in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was a particularly cruel and painful form of execution. Um, you hung there and you literally got weaker and weaker uh, because you couldn't get enough breath. You couldn't 
lift your lungs, your self up enough to get breath, so you suffocate it to death uh, as you're enduring extreme pain. It was also considered despicable. In the ancient world, people thought, the way you die says something about your life. So to die on a cross was just atrocious, horrible. It means you must have been a bad person. Jesus took that on himself for us. So when we take these two things together, Jesus is God and Jesus is a servant, um, we need to understand that Jesus is a servant God. Many translations express the relationship between Jesus' servanthood and his deity as a contrast. You might read, although he was in the form of God, he took on the form of a slave. And there is certainly a contrast between the power and authority that Jesus possesses as God and the, the low status of a slave. But the text isn't really talking about a contrast between his deity and his servanthood. I think it should be read like this. Because Jesus was in the form of God, he took on the form of a slave. You see, God is God who serves us. Isaiah 64, 4 says, From of old, no one has ever heard or no, uh, no one has ever heard, uh, seen or heard about a God like you who waits on those who wait for him. God's a God who waits on us. Have you ever thought about the question, another one of those big questions, why did God create human beings? The ancient world had an answer. The gods needed us to serve them. We had to give them food and offerings. You read all those tales and the gods make human beings so we could be their slaves. And if you contrast that with the God of the Bible, you realize that's not true. God didn't create us because he lacked anything. He doesn't need us. The triune God was completely happy and fulfilled before, before he created you and me. That may come as a shock to us egocentric Westerners, but God doesn't need us. He didn't create us because of a deficit. The impulse behind creation was entirely different. It's altruistic love. What the uh, three persons of God shared this wonderful relationship they wanted to share with others. It comes out of a desire to share himself. In other words, he created us in order that he might meet our needs. That's the God we worship. You see, in God's economy, the stronger serves the weaker. Jesus himself says in Mark 10, uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's who our God is, and that's who Jesus is. Now we've looked at him now uh, at the, the him in the middle, the meat in the sandwich. We briefly want to look at the two slices of bread, the one above and the one below. The one below is in uh, one through five, and what do we learn there? That we should serve each other, that we put others' interests above ourselves. We get away with, uh, do away with selfish ambition and count others as more significant than ourselves. We look to the others' interests of others and not ourselves. That's something unheard of in the ancient world.
world too. In the ancient world, status was everything. <laughs> there was a very clear hierarchy among the various classes, and everybody fought to increase their status and demanded that others recognize it. When you compare this to Paul's admonition that we be like Jesus, we should have the attitude that we are the lowest in rank and think of others as better as ourselves. This demands that we, too, dispense with all claims to status or to guard our privileges. Jesus did that and he expects it from us. It isn't easy, certainly, that's why Jesus, Paul reminds us that we have many resources available, the encouragement of Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. These are qualities that make that possible and uh, should allow us to actually put others ahead of ourselves. Clearly, it doesn't come naturally. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have had to write it. Um, and it can only happen if we pay close attention to the example of Jesus. He had the highest status possible, and yet he used that to serve us. That's the top slice, and the bottom slice it comes in the verses 12 through 13, where Paul uh, makes clear, we also have to obey Jesus. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my am, that emphasis, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Note, begins with therefore. This is a signifies a logical conclusion. Christ him establishes that Jesus is God, and therefore he has the right to demand our obedience. This is, the conclusion is unavoidable, even though it's unpleasant for people in our age. But Paul makes clear that all things, in Colossians for instance, all things were created by and for Jesus. That includes you and me. And that wouldn't be alone sufficient to demand respect, which is what fear and trembling is all about. This verse is a little bit irritating, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, there we could say a lot about it, but what I want to say today is that it has nothing to do with groveling before God. Um, German, the German language actually has a difference between uh, fear and reverence, and the words are almost the same, Furcht and Ehrfurcht. Uh, and fear is the one where you're just terrified of what might happen to you, and the other one is, has to do with this awe that you feel in the presence of God. God doesn't want or need us to grovel. What's being talked about here is confident trust. It goes on to say, we know that God works for us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Paul's not concerned that this will happen. But it is a paradox, obviously. We should approach God in awe-filled reverence because he has already done everything that needs to be done for us. When we read in Exodus 19, we see a similar uh, paradox. God has been giving the Ten Commandments and there's thunder and lightning and enormous electrical storm, obviously, and the people are afraid. And Moses says to them, Don't be afraid, for the fear of the Lord has come upon you. In other words, if you fear God, you have nothing to fear. He's on your side. If you have reverence for God, 
then you have no reason to be afraid. He's working for you. So the result of all of this, as we come to a conclusion, is that obedience to God and service to others are the source of joy for us. Here's another paradox. As Paul is writing in Philippians again, he's sitting in prison, awaiting execution, and yet he speaks about self-sacrifice and obedience, and he's overcome with joy. Are you listless or unhappy? Our culture will tell you that the solution is to go shopping, buy something new, or join a fitness club, or take a self-improvement course. Here's another suggestion for you. Start obeying Jesus and serving others. That's Paul's advice. You might want to use some of your vacation to go on a short-term missions trip or start working in a soup kitchen. Maybe it's time to give up, to get serious about giving up addictive or manipulative behavior patterns and really obeying the commands of Christ. Maybe it's just as simple as turning off your cell phone for a day and really listening to the people around you when they talk to you. All these and more to be signs that you have given authority over your life to Jesus and you are trying to set or follow his example. And you will be surprised how much joy this affords. C.S. Lewis once said, joy is the flag that flies from the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. He's playing upon the fact that when, in our day, the queen is in Buckingham Palace and the flag is put up. When she's in Windsor Castle, the flag is put up there. He says, that's joy in my life. When the king resides here, then the flag of joy gets hoisted. What a wonderful thought. Millennials and others of us are right to be skeptical of superficial joy. The world is in a sad state, and true joy is hard to come by. When Paul speaks of joy, he isn't talking about faking a good mood or ignoring the suffering of the world. He is well aware of the challenges, and he knows that there is only one way to achieve true joy, by following Jesus, by following his example of sacrifice and obedience. His way led to the cross. Why did he do that? Why did he go to the cross? Usually we say, die for me, and that's true, or um, other ways of putting it. Think about this one that the author of Hebrews gives in Hebrews 12, 2. We look to Jesus, he says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He put others ahead of himself, he obeyed the Father, and he knew that the end would be joy. Jesus was pursuing joy. My brother Wes was here, and I closed with this uh, a few weeks ago, and he talked about the church of Muslims that's come up and sprung up in Glasgow. They have baptisms all the time. There are over 100 Muslim converts to faith. And uh, I've been to that church a couple of times, and it is truly the most joyful church I know, in spite of the terrible suffering that some of those people have gone through. And if you were here and heard him speak, you heard about that. There's just ferocious, uh, atrocious and horrendous 
suffering of some of these uh, uh, people. There's one guy there who was beaten so badly by the secret police in Iran that he's laying on one side of his body. And he can't hardly, he can't even move the left side of his mouth, but you've never seen a more beautiful smile than this man's. That's the joy that comes from following Jesus. If you want joy, follow him and his example. Amen.